Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Megan Lee. And I'm Charlotte Bond. Coming-of-age stories have long been a staple within speculative fiction genres. But in the last decade, we have seen an explosion of popularity in what publishers and booksellers refer to as YA, or young adult literature. And within that bracket, nothing is more popular than dystopian YA. We live in an increasingly dysfunctional world where the very future of the planet is at stake. Is it really any wonder that adolescents are gravitating towards these dark stories where they overcome isolation, a lack of control over their futures, and a society that just doesn't care about them? On today's episode, we are joined by debut novelist Melissa Welliver to discuss the ways in which power and agency plays out in dystopian YA. Melissa, would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? I would. Yes, thank you very much. So I'm Melissa. Uh, My debut novel, The Undying Tower, is the beginning of a trilogy and it is coming out um, in paperback on the 7th of October and on ebook on the 9th of September. And it is about a girl who has to fight for what's right in a world where everyone's against her. She finds out that she's something she never thought she was. And it's set in a world where some people can never die and they're seen as a blight on the society they live in. I think that's one of the like clearest, most succinct pitches for a book we've had on the show. That was very well done. <laughs> Amazing. I didn't, I didn't actually practice it. So maybe that's why it came out better. <laughs> well, it worked. So how is power and agency usually re- represented in YA? And and do you think it's changed over the years? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, YA had a real heyday about 10 years ago. And that's when, you know, you're looking at Hunger Games, Divergent, obviously even Twilight, which isn't necessarily dystopian, but you're right, dystopian was like a huge, huge theme back then. I think that when it was originally around, which is the sort of thing I was really playing off when I was trying to write it, it was pre-Brexit, it was pre 2016, it was pre-pandemic. I feel like we were in a slightly happier place. And I feel like the way that they were talking about power and agency and revolution felt sometimes a little bit contrite or a little bit twee at times. Um, Not if you're a big fan, you could see through it, but I think that's why a lot of people were putting down YA. I think they felt like it was something that maybe wasn't very well thought out or felt a little bit like they were trying too hard. But what I really like about how it's changed over the years, I'll give you an example. There was a a book that came out earlier this year called The Boy I Am, which is a dystopian by K.L. Kettle, Kitty Kettle. And it was a gender flipped handmaid's tale um, told from a younger perspective. So it was sort of talking more about toxic masculinity and that power dynamic, as opposed to strong young girl who kicks butt coming into the, forefront and fighting a revolution and I think that people are trying to be smarter about it because there was this huge influx of strong kicking butt girls who were at the forefront of a revolution I think people are trying to do something different now so I think that's definitely how it's changed even though we still have a lot of female protagonists and that one it isn't is a male protagonist but I think that's that's the main way they've people have tried to change it up that's interesting yeah, I, I mean, I, I see your point about people thinking that it's quite trite or whatever when they put it down, and we know that people love to put it down. Yep. 
<laughs> Answer too quickly. Yep. Yeah. But I always thought it was kind of deliberately very constructed in order to kind of show or highlight these things that we might take for granted within our own systems or societies, you know, things that we don't question. Whereas this was so hyper-stylized that that was almost the point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, especially when it comes to things like tropes, which you get a lot, like let's, let's give the example of in the Hunger Games, there's a love triangle. We all know that trope. I think what's different about it though and interesting in the Hunger Games is that the two boys Candice is trying to choose between sort of represent the two ways that she could go about this revolution right so there's Gale and he is very aggressive he really wants to fight he wants to start this war he wants to get in there and then there's Peter who uses his mind and he talks and he's not as big and strong as Gale and he wants to try and find a pacifist way around this problem and thinks they can work things out and it's not necessarily that either of them are right but part of definitely the love triangle is her trying to choose between those two things. So I think sometimes the tropier parts or the bits that maybe feel more familiar to people are used to make the ideas, especially for teenagers, easier to access or more accessible. Um, a lot of obviously the people we're writing for say live in the Western world. Um, you know, my book's coming out in the UK. Most UK teenagers who are lucky enough to be able to afford to go and buy books or be able to get access to books, even libraries, it's difficult. They're all shutting down. So you're expecting it to be probably a teenager that hasn't lived through a huge conflict or a teenager that might not necessarily know firsthand much about prejudice. And obviously they're quite young, so they've not had that experience yet, maybe. Um, so I think sometimes they're used actually as an accessible way in. And when adults read those books, they see things there that not only don't occur to teenagers, but teenagers actually don't really care about. It's the first time they're experiencing that kind of book, whereas maybe an adult who's read a lot of books, it's easy for them to sort of dig in and attack those elements. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think one of the things Megan and I wanted to talk about was how YA, despite being for young adult readers, actually has a readers in the late 20s and early 30s or, you know, even people who host podcasts, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> but, but before we move on to that, I wanted to ask you about the idea of tropes within YA. Mm -hmm. Because one of the things that I think about when it comes to the kind of tropes is that you they're new tropes for YA. Like you say, the love triangle, you don't mm -hmm. really have that do you have that in Harry Potter? I suppose you do a little bit, but in all the sort of younger stuff, it certainly doesn't appear in The Worst Witch. It doesn't happen in a, no. a lot of, you know, it's not in The Hobbit for things like that, you know. Yeah, so when you're true. a younger reader, you don't have these kind of tropes. And although they are tropey for YA, that audience has never seen them before. And even mm -hmm. if you take the idea of the love triangle, you've got Twilight and you've got The Hunger Games, both of which have love triangles, but come at them from very different angles. Do you think that's the case that although it's tropey to us as older readers, the young adults are going, wow, this is great. You know, this is just how I feel about these two guys at school. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I think that sometimes, especially, I think even that way, when we look, when we look at them and they, and we think, oh, maybe they've not experienced this before. I think for teenagers, they're not looking for often uh, the same sort of literary experience as an adult, right? So they're looking for the story. The story is king for teenagers. I'm not saying that the writing doesn't matter. Of course, we're all trying to get our craft down. But I definitely find that when I'm writing for teenagers, the language is simpler. I want to make sure that the action is at the front of the page. The description really is pushed back. Thinking about craft when you're writing for younger people. And I think especially teenagers. With younger fiction, you might want to describe things that little bit more to help them imagine what's going on. I think 
older to they they want the characterization and that's where the love triangles and things come in they want to care about the characters and that and they want to care about the actions of the characters so i think yeah definitely they not only have they not seen it before but there is an enjoyment to be taken from tropes i think there's a difference between tropes and cliches so cliches done badly maybe even offensively to some extent i think a good trope there's there's always a trope everybody loves like i love their website called tv tropes And I love looking up all the different, especially some romance tropes that are really common, like uh, fake dating. That is a common romance trope that can totally be turned on its head and be made into something really interesting. So, yeah, I definitely think that not only have teenagers not seen it before, but they're not as bothered about those sort of literary elements that we think of when we studied it. And we're right at this end of the spectrum, looking back and thinking what we were reading. Absolutely. And I'm thinking about the idea of fantasy, a very popular trope or story structure in fantasy mm-hmm. is the coming of age tale and kind of, you know, finding your powers and whatever. And that's what YA is all about. But you're quite right that in YA, when you're finding your powers, it is about the social dynamics within it. It's about the people around you and the love triangles. And one right. thing that I'm always saying when I'm editing people who've d- written YA or children, particularly YA, it's all about becoming better than the adults. That's what it's about in way. Yeah. If you've got an adult stepping in and saving the day, then that gets scrubbed out if I'm, if I'm your editor. <laughs> so, you know, that's, <laughs> that's not how it goes. That's not what YA is about. Whereas when you get the coming of age in fantasy, it is all about the politics and the power and the magic and bringing up destinies and bringing down kingdoms and things like that. But when it's YA, you can still have these things. But you're right, they do take a bit more of a, a background to the characters and, and the relationships. Yeah, yeah, I definitely think so. And I think that when it comes to teenagers, they're also thinking about picking their own path and picking their own families, right? So they're thinking about their friends, who they're spending more time with, and how the people that you surround yourself with is important. And you need to think about that. And I think definitely books bring in sort of a morality aspect of that. Think about with Katniss and Peter and Gail, who are you choosing here? What sort of path are you choosing for yourself when you surround yourself with certain types of people? And if those decisions are being made by adults, where is the escapism element for the book? I don't think kids want to read about adults telling them what to do. They get enough of that anyway. So it's not particularly something they want to read about. When you're talking about tropes, I found mm. that really interesting because you were saying how these younger readers haven't experienced them yet. But at the same time, tropes exist because readers like to know what they're getting into. You know, we like certain kinds of books because we like certain kinds of tropes. And obviously, yes, many of us like inverted tropes and we like to see different things happen. But on the whole, you know, you like certain genres, you like certain kinds of stories, and that's what tropes are for, basically. Mm -hmm. So if you're saying that the tropes, I mean, almost are used in a very different way, how do reader expectations then shape the perpetuation of them? Because if you're saying that the you know they don't have those trope expectations, then why is YA so trope heavy in a in a way? If you mm-hmm. see where I'm going with this, <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. I think uh, the weird thing about YA is it's treated as a genre, not an age group, and that's a bit weird to me. So obviously sometimes people talk about the fall of YA and how 10 years ago was this heyday and now it's a trickier sell and it is a trickier sell. And I think that's really weird because if you're really into crime fiction and you've read all 25 novels of Inspector So-and-So, you're not thinking, oh, right, well, crime's obviously overdone, isn't it? There's way too many crime books. Same with romance, same with fantasy, all the other genres. People pick up the tropes that they want from those genres 
example, in romance, you always have a happy ever after. And they want that when they read the next book. If they're being told this book is X meets Y, and those two books are in the genre that they love, they're expecting certain things from that book. And you don't want to disappoint the reader without being obviously super predictable. You don't want to be predictable, obviously. So I think with YA, it's weird because it's treated like a genre. However, I think that getting teenagers reading any way you can, you do need to give them familiar elements to help ease them in. We're competing now with so many different things. We're competing with video games. We're competing with the internet, Netflix, et cetera, et cetera. You've got to really push everything to the forefront. And if you can use tropes in order to show that reader, this is a familiar story. You may not know exactly what's going to happen to this person, but you can follow those footsteps and it will remind you of a book that you read that you really grasped onto, that teens really, really do. I think that can help them to find their way with reading and even going into adulthood, create those readers. Yeah, definitely. What do you think about tropes specifically for YA and dystopian YA that involve power and agency? What sort of tropes Mm. do you like to see within that? And which ones would you like to see just, you know, forgotten, buried? (laughs) It's tricky, isn't it? Because obviously there's always, whenever you write a book, People say there's only so many stories. If you're crafting a novel, you probably know various stories such as Save the Cat and ways of crafting stories. And if you aren't necessarily a writer, but you are a reader or even a watcher, you maybe know the seven story. That's a trope in itself. There's only seven stories. I think the difficulty is you're always going to have somebody who's a bit of a chosen one, right? So you get, you've got to have somebody or else why are you telling the story from their point of view? If it's a whole story populated mindset in Britain um, in the future, the Avalonia Zone, it's called. And obviously, it's populated by a lot of people. In fact, it's massively overpopulated. I've got to pick someone out of 100 million people to tell the story from. So I pick Sadie. So she is, in some senses, a chosen one. She is the daughter of a criminal. You find that out in the first couple of chapters. It's a story about her. However, I think when it comes to YA bringing in tropes that work, I think that's one of them because you need to make sure that the children and the teenagers are in charge of bringing about the change. It's just like, I feel like I'm going to make a Taylor Swift reference now about young ones, but it is, it's only the young. They're going to be the ones bringing, ushering in this change. We want them to be voting. We want them to be thinking about how they can change their future. We don't want teenagers to feel as powerless as they probably do, especially at the minute. We want a whole generation of Greta Thunbergs, right? So I think fiction is a really good way to get into that. Uh, In terms of tropes that I don't like, I think that's a really tough question because I really can't think, I think there's a space for every trope. As I say, not cliches, not things where obviously it's turning the other way or becoming offensive or whatever, but I think there's a space for every trope, especially in fact in dystopian, when it's such a dark storyline, you're maybe following along, people have died. We're talking usually about um, some sort of prejudice happening. In mine, it's a prejudice against the undying, these people that live for a long time. And I think sometimes you need to either break that up with something like humour or sometimes just a nice soft moment. Your love triangle comes in, you're fake dating, you're somebody, a, a guard's running towards you. So you have to kiss in the corridor and tuck behind the corner. Everybody loves that trope. And I think it gives a little bit as well of a, of a break from that really hardcore story. I think dystopian lends itself even more to those kinds of tropes. It's funny because you were talking there about the snatched kisses and the, I guess, the the melodramatic aspects, which I have to admit, for anyone who knows me, I am an absolute sucker 
for the more melodramatic uh, tropes. I am a huge fan of teenage, like, high school anime slice of life stuff, <laughs> which is basically just all of that. Uh, and also I think why I like some of these YA novels. And I think, you know, as, as Charlotte mentioned earlier, you know, we wanted to, to sort of talk about why, given that, yes, people talk about YA as a genre, but really it's kind of a book category and it's it's really talking mm-hmm. about the kinds of readers it's aimed at. Right. And while it's supposedly for these young adult readers, the statistics show that a much greater proportion of the readers are actually much older than the yeah, supposed right. <laughs> uh, age group. So, I mean, for me, certainly, there's that nostalgia and a kind of, you know, wanting to relive my teenage years in a way, even though it was horrible and I hated high school and I felt really awkward and I was always uncomfortable and, right. and I got bullied and whatever, you know, but at the same time, I kind of want to relive it. But also... <sighs> God, this is probably going to show what kind of a dork I am. But so like Olivia Rodrigo, right? She's Mm -hmm. all over the the charts at the moment. And she was talking about how, you know, melodramatic her her album is. It's all about a breakup and like love is so hard. And she was like, well, I'm a teenager and we feel things really powerfully. And I think that's Mm -hmm. the bit that I really cling to. That's very true, yeah. Yeah, that's what I really like about YA. But I mean, why do you think that older readers really gravitate towards YA as well? Yeah, yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think especially the nostalgia aspect comes in a lot. So obviously when you write something, so there's lots of writers that start off by thinking, oh, I'm going to write a book about being a teenager. I was a teenager in 2002, so I'm going to write about that. And obviously if you are aiming it at teens, they weren't even alive in 2002. They don't want to read about that. They don't want to know about that. Um, so you're just showing your age as such. But I think that adults really gravitate towards it because I think sometimes it depends what sorts of books they're finding. I think YA gets a particular type of marketing. Obviously, there was a huge film franchise movement in the um, 2010s or late noughties. And a lot of adults were obviously watching those as well. So I think there's definitely something about the way that they're marketed. And I hate to say it, but certainly the way that they're marketed, especially with these female main characters towards women. It's interesting that most of the people in my field that writing for YA and middle grade, actually, they are usually women. I'm in a debut group for 2021 authors in the UK and there's 40 people in it. And I think, I think easily 30 to 35 of us are women. I think what's interesting about it is some people would think it's a maternal aspect, but actually a lot of people in the group don't have kids. I don't have kids. Um, so don't have teenage children. It's just that I, I mostly read YA. I read what I write. I think that's really important to read around what you want to write and find those elements that people are going to cling on to and people expect in that story. But I think that the whole way that adults see children's writing is sometimes an accessibility issue. I know that some people see some adult books, let's take like the Booker List, for instance, that's like a common prize. Lots of people have heard of it, even people who aren't big readers, they've heard of the Booker List Prize. And there's a joke in The Guardian, the not the Booker List Prize, and it's the quote, readable 
enjoyable book a list, right? So it's the the thing that's easy to understand and people don't have to feel clever. And whether you agree with that or not, which obviously we're going to right now, but whether you agree with that or not, I think the thing that gets people with YA, when I've recommended it to my book group, they say they just love how it's fast paced. It's not as taxing, not in terms of the ideas. The ideas are very taxing. The emotions are high. But I think the way that they're written, because it's story first all the time, and they're pushing the action to the foreground, as I was saying earlier, I think a lot of people, it can get you out of a reading slump. I think people like that it's usually quicker to read. I certainly find I can really race through an action-packed YA in a different way to an enjoyable, but perhaps slower-paced adult novel. And I think those tropes especially help that along and we're expecting certain things and it, the anticipation of expecting certain things of those stolen moments and especially the emotional moments push you along. So I think that's I think that's why a lot of people are drawn to YA, even though it's got this for some bizarre reason, if I'm being honest, this really bad tag of uh, being really lame and it's just really cliched. And that's not true at all. I know so many people that read YA and yeah, whenever I've done it in book club, we've always really enjoyed it. So I think that, that is also a reason why adults are drawn more towards YA. Listening to what Megan was saying about having a sort of an unhappy teenage years, it makes me wonder if younger readers or YA readers will read the YA genre looking mm. for sort of wish fulfillment and, you know, my life really sucks and, and the girls are really bitchy and the boys are really unpleasant, but I can mm. escape to this world where things are better and where people like me triumph. Mm-hmm. So they're reading it for wish fulfillments. I wonder if people like Megan and I, who maybe had not the best teenage years, are now reading it for kind of reverse wish fulfillment and kind of go, well, you know, it was really sucky, but I want to know what it was like or whether the scars of being a teenager and the negative effects are so deeply within us that mm-hmm. part of the healing process is reading this and kind of going, you know what? Yeah, that would have been so much cooler if I'd grown up like that. And, you know, it, you've you've still got that yearning inside you from when you're a teenager and all those those missed moments of either the kisses in the corridor or, you know, just kicking the ass of the authoritarian teacher that you really hated. Yeah. And then, you know, you read about it because it never goes away because you always, always wish you could just go back and do it a bit differently. Yeah, I think that's really interesting as well because with dystopian, there's always sort of, a fancy or sci-fi element because it's futuristic, right? So you quite often get super escapism within that, but also because it's dystopian, it's very often set in our world in some way. So you can imagine that happening in the future. And I think that thinking about people escaping into something, that's why YA and especially teenagers, it generates a lot of fan fiction, which is an incredible medium for writing that again is massively poo-pooed by the rest of the literary community in a lot of ways. People are trying to champion it more, but there's a reason why there's been all these fan fictions written that have just become so huge on Wattpad and various different platforms and people have been sharing stuff on their Tumblrs and it's mostly teenagers creating a world from seeing something, wanting to escape into it wanting to connect with that world and creating versions of their own and I think when you're a teen and then that carries over into adulthood you have this whole thing where you can keep imagining the story after it's finished right so you never quite finish off a YA book I don't like what in fact this is actually a bugbear of mine ones where if it's been a series they do an epilogue at the end to show what they're like when they're grown-ups no, I don't want to know what they're like when they're grown ups. Okay. I want to imagine that they stayed young forever. And I can imagine what happened afterwards, like the seconds after they won the war, the seconds after, you know, Harry Potter famously does that, obviously that huge epilogue at the end where they're grown ups and they have their own children. And I still wanted to stay 
where I was that came out when I was in my late teens. I want to stay back in time in that moment and keep imagining things and sharing that escapism. And I think that's another thing I really like about YA. You get a lot more generated discussion from the fans. People like to talk to each other about who, what team they're on. Hashtag team Edward, hashtag team Jacob. Team Peter. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. So you've got, you've got all these different elements and you turn it into a whole internet fandom and the fans are amazing with YA. They, they go into it really hard, probably because they have the time. They have the time to be those fans. It's not just with reading, but also TV shows, films, obviously, oh, even video games now. Like I remember when I played through The Last of Us, my gosh, like I was totally involved with the story and the story is becoming more important in those mediums. And especially with things like PlayStation, they're trying to target more teenagers as well as adults. And I just think there is a universality to all of that type of reading, I think that that's always going to attract people in from both ends and nostalgia comes from that. You can create your own nostalgia. You're right. Like even if you had a bad time and you're a teen, you can create your own either via fan fiction or just by talking to other fans and imagining what could be. Yeah, I don't know about you, but I used to read a lot of Harry Potter fan fiction. My yeah. my particular brand, shall we say, was anything that put Draco and Hermione together because I thought they would have made the perfect couple. But <laughs> Exactly, exactly. That's the whole thing, isn't it? I used to read Coronation Street fan fiction where they were vampire hunters. It was the best stuff. I was like, why is no one writing about super northern people on a cobbled street being vampire hunters? This is great. This, it's just, it's so imaginative. You don't have to be constrained by publishing, which obviously the original stuff that these things come from are constrained by publishing. You do have certain things that you can and can't do. Why is more open than other things? Obviously, if you're writing middle grade as well, there's even more rules, but you are constrained by your editor has to get involved. You have to think about your audience, totally understand that. So it's great to see people take stuff and run with it where in a safe space where they can do that. We touched on it a little bit already about mm-hmm. this kind of negative perception of YA and the way people kind of dismiss it. Yeah. And there's also something that I think we've touched on before on the show and that I just see coming up again and again when females write stories about younger people and or when the protagonist is female and that is far more likely to be called YA than if it's similar with a young boy and Mm -hmm. I think part of it again is this weird kind of thing where it's not quite a genre it's not quite just like the age group it's it's kind of how they market it but they tend to market much fewer books with male protagonists or written by men as YA Mm -hmm. whereas they do that a lot with women especially for for authors who hadn't envisaged their novels being for that audience, mm-hmm. um, but they're kind of lumped into that group because it's a young woman main character and suddenly that's that means they're YA. And then all the negative connotations that go along with that. I mean, yeah. why, do, why do you think that there's this kind of lumping of, of women, of female writers, female protagonists, that we have to somehow be in this sort of slightly derided category? Yeah, I think it is a self-fulfilling prophecy to do with marketing, like you were saying. So I think when it comes to young girls, 
um, and I'm going all the way down to sort of middle grade readers, they will quite happily read a book with a male main character. I remember the Alex Riders series was really popular when I was younger and I very happily read that series. Obviously, you've mentioned Harry Potter. But the problem is they find when they do all these many surveys, people are paid lots of money to do that boys will not read girl main characters. And that is one of the reasons I've heard that the Hunger Games became so popular was that it was just violent enough that the boys were picking it up. Um, so they were actually reading a female character for the first time. And that's what you need to do, obviously, to get a, a bestseller. You just need to hit the market where you're not just selling to the person you were expecting to be writing for. You're also selling to everyone else as well. So adults were reading Harry Potter, boys are reading Hunger Games, despite there being a love triangle and a girl in it. So shocking. Yeah, I think it's a difficulty. It's, you understand, I understand that there's only so much shelf space. They need to obviously target their audience. They know that more girls, teenage girls read more than boys, which is obviously something we're all trying to change. Schools are doing a really good job with it. Libraries are doing a really good job with it, but it's still a major problem. I think... I think also just women get pigeonholed to all these different things anyway. So it's, it's bound to happen with children's fiction as well. For instance, women's fiction, where's the men's fiction section? That's, that's weird. There's, there's more women than men. We're in the majority. Why do we have our own section for our gender? Just like I'm saying about YA, it's been turned into a genre like crime or romance, as opposed to just being an age category, like middle grade is just sort of pushing towards it. And so that's why I always, if I'm saying I've written a YA book, I'll say it's YA dystopian or it's, you know, YA, whatever, insert category here, because that's just the age group. That's, that's what they do. People can read any book at any age. That's, that's the great thing about books. They don't just, it's not when you get so older, the language all changes and you can't read it. There's a good book idea. Um, <laughs> it's completely different to that. So yeah, it's tricky. I think it's just a symptom of the times and the way things are marketed, the way things are sold and how you don't have much time to push a book in somebody's hands and trying to compete with other stuff. So yeah, I think it's mostly a marketing issue um, that is going to be hard to change. It's interesting when you look back at the classic fantasy novels, which are basically, you know, the same thing, the coming of age story, the feeling like you have no control over your life and all of the, all the same sorts of tropes mm-hmm. in those classic fantasy novels. And mm-hmm. you would never call them YA. And it is the exact same thing. And it's just, a yeah, it is marketing shorthand. It is also a way of, you know, people don't want to have their beloved novels that they read when they were kids relabeled as such, but that is what they are. So mm-hmm. things like the David Eddings book or even Star Wars, okay? Star Wars is YA. You know, yeah. Luke is meant to be a teenager. Leia's yeah. a teenager. It's and definitely coming of age. Yeah, it's yeah. <laughs> completely, you know, and, and then the, the prequels, you know, when in the first film, what, uh, Anakin's like nine and Amidala's, I think she's meant to be 14. Yeah. So, you know, that's that's totally YA. Yeah, young romance, first romance, all of hitting all of those points. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But people don't talk about it that way and then somehow it gets a free pass. <laughs> no, abs- yeah, absolutely does. I, I understand if you, obviously, if I'm looking for a book and I'm using the evil Amazon, I am typing into the search box for certain genres. Like that's what I'm looking for. And I am hoping that when certain books come up, it says, this other people enjoyed this book. And that's how you find other books. If you're not using word of mouth, if somebody's not recommend you a good book in a while, you're going to look yourself and that's the way you find it. However, the, pro- the problem with that is you start to tunnel people 
you funnel them into this tunnel of you have to read this and then you should be reading this. And it means that you lose other audience members because I think there's just, there's no exchange for word of mouth. Word of mouth is the way a book gets big. The biggest books I read are the ones that somebody says, have you read this book? Everyone's talking about it. Everybody has an opinion. So those are the ones that get bigger for obvious reasons. So yeah, so it's always going to be tricky. It's always going to be, I think it's a marketing issue. Coming of age is a really strong theme within way with a protagonist gain power and agency over adults, teachers, doctors, their own destiny, that kind of thing. But at the same time, that's often mirrored by a wider societal shift where there's perhaps a revolution going on, as is the case in The Undying Tower. So why do you think these narratives feel that they need to sort of have the individual and the wider shift in power and agency? Do you think they're completely interconnected? Or do you think they just go really well together, which is one reason why so many authors tend to favour them? Mm, I think it's both. When you're learning about craft of writing, you're thinking about the internal and external conflict. So it seems like an obvious pairing to put together to have any success that you have inside to be reflected outside in your society. And I also think it's a great message for teens in general, and to be honest, in adults in general as well, as we've discussed, read a lot of these teen books. I think that anything where you can have the protagonist's internal character arc affect the world around them. So it's not just that they're thinking of themselves. I think teenagers get accused a lot of being selfish. And I think it's not on. They're not selfish. They are thinking about the world around them, but quite often they are too shy or feel too powerless to do anything about it. So anything where they can become more confident and use that confidence to affect a change is a great thing. And I think that when they see that in fiction, especially if you make it exciting with explosions and car chases and pew, pew, pew moments, I think that can definitely help draw them into reading and make them think at the same time. I really like what you're saying about this idea of teenagers being selfish, but kind of if you pair them up with the the wider environment, you're right, it does give a sort of a, a bigger sense to it. And it's not the big fantasy coming of age where, as I said earlier, you had the rise of destiny and the fall of kingdom. Right. You do to a certain extent, but certainly with dystopian way, it's a, it's a bit more controlled, a bit more confined, isn't it? So I know that obviously the Undying Tower is set, like you say, in Britain, and you mention other areas as well, but it, it mm-hmm. kind of feels more real, more manageable, more relatable because it is somewhere we know and also somewhere that is imaginable rather than a huge fantasy kingdom. Yeah, definitely. So my favourite type of writing and things to read and is is speculative. So speculating how something would be different in the future if people don't know what speculative fiction is, or possibly how is something different in the past, how it would affect our present. And what I really like about it is it means that you can think, I think that little bit more you can insert yourself into, how would I fit into that? And I think anything that puts you in those shoes where you think, what would happen if that was me? Because Things happen in the world all the time. We're seeing it, obviously, at the minute in the news. And you see every day in the news, to be honest. Things happen where you're trying to understand how somebody feels, but maybe you're feeling more sympathy than empathy. And especially when you're a young person, when you're a teenager, and you maybe haven't come across those sorts of things before. I think what's great about speculative fiction is it already sets up a world that they understand. And you can add these extra parameters to say, how would you react if you were in this situation. And again, I think that's what's great about fan fiction. People are also a little bit thinking, especially if they write in first person, a lot of YAs in first person. If I was in that character's shoes, 
I want to explore my emotions and my external actions of what would happen there. So I think that's definitely part of it. Yeah, unfortunately for me, most of mine was just if I was in that character's uh, shoes, which one of them would I be boning? But, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Megan bringing the tone down again. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very serious conversation. You know? Yes, well, you know. Who would we be boning? It's a really important question. It is. <laughs> what I want, wanted to talk about was... How you do have these characters who often sort of kickstart revolutions, Mm -hmm. but they're really the ones who actively want that. You know, the revolution is something that happens almost despite them, maybe because of them, but not because they're trying to have that revolution. They're not trying to enact that major change in society, or at least not at the beginning. Okay, yeah. And I was just wondering why, because it seems that a lot of YA, you know, when adolescents are feeling powerless and they they like this kind of escape, they like to read about things where people like them have the power to actually change things and they don't have to listen to their mum saying, no, you can't have ice cream for breakfast. Why not? <laughs> it's about that idea of having that power and agency, the possibility of making a difference and to change things and to have the power to make your own choices and all that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So then I find it interesting that in these sort of mostly in dystopian ways where you have a protagonist who kicks off a revolution, they aren't the ones who are driving that or, you know, that's something that just kind of happens to them rather than it being part of that decision-making or real motivation and drive. Right. I think... The reluctant hero is something that comes up again in a lot of craft stuff, right? So you've always got, I mean, we were talking about Star Wars earlier. Luke is reluctant until he finds his crispy aunt and uncle outside his house. He's like, well, I've got no choice now. I've got to go with this strange dude in a bathrobe because I can't stay here. And I think think that's, that's a common one that maybe it just seems more pronounced, especially in dystopian or revolutionary type fiction. A lot of the time as well, it would be too unbelievable, in my opinion. Things like revolution take a long time to come about. Again, in the news or even in history, it's years, it's possibly decades, it's ideological thinking developing over a long time. And we're talking about teenagers who have only been around, obviously, a short time and in even shorter time, they've really been thinking ideologically, right? So they've had that ability to think like that when they are teenagers or older children. So I think it would be unbelievable to assume that they're there. What I like to explore when I'm doing revolutionary fiction or thinking about revolutionary fiction is not only how do kids fit in with this, but how would they maybe change the narrative? Sometimes I think a lot of those stories with a revolution in them start off one way and new thinking, new eyes bring it a different way, right? So we also see a lot of the time is somebody, what, what What are the reasons behind a revolution for somebody? For younger people, it's definitely, they're thinking about their future. They're thinking about growing up. They're thinking about how can I make things better for me? A lot of people within the revolution are thinking that, but a lot of the times the leaders, if they've become power hungry, if they're the, if they're the head of this, happens in the Hunger Games with President Coyne, spoilers, that she is obviously thinking about herself a little bit, that power is going to go to your head. I think with a teenager, when they feel like they've got no power anyway, even when they're given some, 
it's more likely that they're going to want to use it and wield it for something good. Because again, I believe in the teenagers. I believe in the young people. I think that they're the way forward. They are the future. It's going to be fine. So I think if you can bring those ideas into especially young adult fiction and have them thinking about what do you already know about, especially in speculative, it's set in the real world. Imagine if this extremist group was powerful enough to do X, Y, or Z. Think about the extremist ideologies that you see around you in the real world. How can you battle that? How can you add to that conversation? I mean, a book is, somebody once said to me, a book is um, having a six hour conversation with somebody that can't answer you back. But the great thing about the internet and the great thing about fandom is you can answer back. You can really think about that and you can really process what that conversation is. So if that's represented by revolutionary ideology that then a teenager can slot into or start thinking about how can I help this? I think that's the reason why that comes up more in younger fiction than older dystopian fiction. It's interesting as well, because you have this again, like they're finding their power, they're finding their voice and they're, you know, learning how to use it and to see that things can change. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, a lot of these stories form parts of trilogies. (laughs) Yeah. So it's like what the author giveth, they takest away. (laughs) So you see these characters get some power and and start to change things. And then once they're actually given that power, it just keeps being stripped. And like you say, with with Hunger Games, you know, you have President Coin and it, it turns out that, okay, well, Katniss is like super important to the revolution. But at the same time, she has no actual power. She has no say in things. They don't come to her for advice on how to plan things. She didn't even know half of the stuff that was happening. Right. She still feels powerless. And it's like at every turn, you know, you get the kind of resolution at the end of book one and then it just, you know, things get worse again and they have their power stripped again. And it's quite, it can be a little bit depressing. Yeah. (laughs) But I, I sort of wonder, you know, if these are kinds of parables about the reality of, of power and how the world really works that even, Freedom is really an illusion. We never really have the power to control everything about our lives and that, you know, we'll constantly come up against more and more battles that we have to overcome. Yeah, that's interesting as well, comparing the stripping of power to beginning and end of each book of a trilogy. So obviously mine's a trilogy because if you don't like tropes, not going to like my book, but that's okay. Um, So it's a trilogy and... I heard a really good piece of advice from Dave Rudden, who's a middle grade writer. And he said that a trilogy is book one, you're showing somebody around your house and you're giving them a house tour. Book two is you show them the secret rooms behind the hidden uh, library door that's actually a bookshelf. And so they've got all these secret rooms. And book three, you burn the house down. And I think that's a good way of thinking about power as well, like a power struggle. So it can seem depressing, and again, I guess with a trilogy, you're expecting certain things from each book, just like with tropes. So you're expecting book two to be building that world out, to understand that a little bit more and to raise those stakes ready for book three. So you know that they're not going to get the agency that they want by the end of book two. And you know that, and that's okay. It's not exactly a, a spoiler or you don't feel like it's too predictable because you're expecting that because you want book three. That's the point of the trilogy. You're hoping that the person will want to get through and read book three. So when it comes to power, I think 
it's not necessarily that they get stripped of the power. It's that they get the power and then realize that they're going to need a bigger boat. So they get to the end of that problem and they overcome problem one in book one. And then they look up and there's a bigger mountain to climb and it will need more power as opposed to it being stripped back. And that's just part of raising those stakes in general writing craft anyway. You want to keep pushing those sticks up for every single book. So I think, yeah, I think I understand why it was seemed depressing um, to always be at the bottom of the hill again or feeling that way. But I think it's more that just they need to keep using the power that they got from previous time to help them get even more power the next time. And it's a parable of trying to move up in life, that coming of age story where it's, you know, you've got the first thing and then you've got to move on to the next thing. You've got to use your knowledge from the previous thing to get the next thing. It's not pointless. It's just building on something so that you can get to where you want to be. So I'm just really cynical when I think that it's all just Sisyphus over and over again. It's not by the end of book three. (laughs) (laughs) When we've been talking about the young adult protagonist gaining power, obviously in a dystopian setting, you quite often have a very strong power base at the top that is to be toppled in in the revolution, whether that's President Snow or or whatever it is. But Mm -hmm. I was quite interested in The Undying Tower, how the undying, who are basically immortal, are shoved right at the bottom and the ones being treated really badly and the ones discriminated against. Mm -hmm. So I I thought this was quite interesting because normally you'd think like, you know, vampires ruling society. I know they're not vampires, but the idea of immortality and (laughs) then the immortals being at the top and hiding in plain sight and amassing loads of money over the years and blah, blah, blah. Although I Mm -hmm. did notice as well, it's at the very beginning, isn't it? So as in they've only just discovered the immortals, they haven't had time to build up a real power base and it seems like they're already being crushed. So I just wondered why you had what is traditionally the most powerful characters in a novel Mm -hmm. at the bottom of the food chain. I wondered if it was a a commentary on minorities or whether it was because it was right at the very beginning and you would talk about how society balanced itself out or was there something else that inspired you to twist this sort of balance of power? Yeah, sort of all the above plus a couple of things. So yeah, it's definitely a commentary on minorities. They are, it's 5% of the population. So it's only these 5% that can live longer. They aren't, it's explored a little bit in the book that not necessarily a lot stronger or a lot faster, like say a vampire might be really strong, really fast. And it's not exactly that. They are a little bit healthier. They're that little bit stronger because of it. But essentially they just live longer. They're not affected by the same worries that we may have about types, certain types of illnesses, certain things that happen as you get older and get sicker. The book was actually based on a friend of mine, Caroline Chisholm, who um, passed away in 2015. And I was thinking it was cancer. And I was thinking about what would happen if she hadn't had to worry about that. And we didn't need to think about those types of things. And that was definitely the basis of the undying coming about. And then I wanted to think about if just because they live longer, what would be a way that the other 95% would use that to their advantage? Because they are the minority. There's not enough of them to rise up. Well, not yet anyway, obviously, because they live longer. There's a massive uh, population problem. There are eventually going to be more of them than there are of us, if you like, if you want to use that terminology. So you're right. It's only about a couple of decades after the discovery of these undying people and how that's going to play out. So it's also 
partly because it's at the beginning. And also, to be honest, we were talking about tropes in YA. I did want to flip that. I did want to flip the trope of just because somebody's immortal, there's all these, a lot of people talk about it being creepy, especially in YA, having like a hundred year old vampire boyfriend, having the really old dude who preys on the young human girl. And I didn't want that. I wanted it to feel like immortality would be a bad thing, which is what a lot of the time those books do explore eventually. They eventually decide, quote unquote, through the debate of the book that immortality is a bad thing. Usually they find the person they want to love and they go off with them forever, or perhaps they die in a beautiful way together or whatever it may be. So I wanted to flip that on its head and think, what if it's bad from the beginning? Like we don't know what's going to happen. There's nobody that's say a hundred years old yet. They don't know what that's going to be like. Is it going to feel lonely? I was also thinking about themes for young people. So let's say when they're having to choose options, when they're doing GCSEs or A-levels, and they're thinking about, oh gosh, I'm 15 years old. I have to think about what I'm going to do for the rest of my life right now. And even though that's absolutely not true, you do not need to think about what we would do for the rest of life. That's what it feels like. And I was thinking, imagine if the rest of your life, you're sat there at 16 and you're being told you could live forever. And you've got to think about what you want to do right now. And it, that would be terrifying. I, I would hate that. So that's essentially where I was going with it. I was thinking about all the ways that that is a bad thing, even though it's maybe something I was thinking about, especially after Caroline died, as being a good thing, not having to worry about anything like that. But I think it would also possibly make you quite a selfish person. So I wanted The Undying to be very community thought and very central to that community. Um, So if they're the oppressed, as opposed to maybe being selfish immortals at the top, uh, sat in their thrones. Yeah. So I think that's, 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 it was a few different reasons why. And I must, I think probably the world building informed the plot very heavily because of that. And it's a fantasy element in a speculative fiction. It's a bit of a tricky one, whether it's like sci-fi element or a fantasy element, which is obviously explored throughout the books. So yeah, that's, that's pretty much why I decided to do it that way. I really just loved how society just jumped on them and crushed them. And I mean, I say love, I, I felt very sorry for them and whatever, but I thought it was a wonderful take on how people would respond to something like that right now. Um, mm-hmm. And I thought there was a, a lot of societal commentary in that. Um, like you say, because at the moment they are the minority and it was really interesting to see how it, it sort of played out. It was it was really fascinating. It was one of my favourite bits of the book, actually. Oh, thank you. Well, that is a lovely place to wrap it up. Thank you very much for being on the show today. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it. It's been such a great chat. I'd love talking about agency for teenagers and writing for young people. So it's been great. Well, thank you again. And for anyone listening, you should go out and buy The Undying Tower. Yes, absolutely. Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.